programa de los impuestos ya empezó. Ya no, porque Boost Mobile te da gratis un Samsung Galaxy A23 5G cuando te cambias y con el poder de las redes 5G más grandes del país. No más drama, ¿qué será de mí? Cámbiate a Boost y llévate un Samsung Galaxy A23 5G gratis. Oferta por tiempo limitado, solo nuevos clientes, disponible en ciertas redes. El servicio 5G no está disponible en todas partes. Un dispositivo por línea excluye impuestos, aplican restricciones adicionales. Visita una tienda para detalles. Friends, hello. It is I. I am back from paternity leave. I hope that you enjoyed last week's episode where I sat down with our podcast producer, Noah, to talk about the past two weeks. And we are back in the saddle bringing you a new interview. So on this episode, I talked to Kristen Dumay. Now, if you don't know who she is, she wrote a book you might have heard of. It's called Jesus and John Wayne, and I was able to have her on to talk about the book and also a few other topics that I'm not sure if she's talked much about publicly. I will save that for the interview, but I think you're really going to enjoy it. So thank you, Kristen, for coming on, and friends, I really hope that you enjoy this interview. That being said, it feels so good to be back. I am back talking on Instagram, back making content, and of course now doing intros for the podcast. If you like the work that we we do. Please, if you don't mind, if you could give us a rating for the podcast, that would be so helpful. And also, huge news, we are officially a registered nonprofit. That means that all of your donations are officially tax deductible. So if you want to support the work that we do, you can click on the link in our show notes to do that. Thank you, everyone who has donated. It, it literally keeps the lights on. It allows us to keep doing this work. We really appreciate it. All right, friends, without further ado, here is my interview with Kristen Dumay. I hope that you enjoy it. Wow, this this is one of my uh, my personal bucket list interviews to have. So I on the podcast I have Dr. Kristen Dumay. I'm going to say your whole name just for now. Um, but I appreciate you coming on, uh, Kristen, and making time. I know we've been trying to make it happen. You've been so busy with the huge success of the book. Which, by the way, congratulations uh, on that. Um, and so thanks for coming on. I I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I'm I'm really happy to be here. Well, let's start here. You know, I, I think most of at least our audience they're pretty aware of your book. We di we did your book uh, last book season or our book club, and people, of course, loved it. Um, it was a heavy book. It, there were a lot of tears in the Zoom groups, but they were good tears. You know, honestly, tears of I finally am seen. So I appreciate that. But but before we get into that stuff, I'm kind of curious your own backstory. Like, did you were you raised evangelical? How how do we go from childhood Christian to Jesus? And John Wayne, holy balls, Kristen. I, I need to know <laughs> that journey. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I really wish I had a, a, a short answer to the were you raised evangelical because uh, I don't, and it would be really handy. Fair um, and, and this gets to you know what is evangelicalism too, mm. because I grew up in yeah. a small town in Iowa in a very Dutch immigrant community. Uh, where, you know, four of the biggest churches in town were Christian reformed churches, mm -hmm. my denomination. So I was in this little bubble. My dad, uh, 
was a theology professor at Dort in town, uh, Dort College, which mm-hmm. is in the Dutch Reformed tradition. Yep. My mom was an immigrant from the Netherlands. And so I, I was raised in, uh, I never identified as an evangelical. And when I was younger, my sense of evangelicalism was, you know, we defined ourselves in that community and the Christian Reformed Church and the Dutch Reformed community over against American evangelicals, right? We oh. were distinctive. We were smarter and we were better. <laughs> and so um, that said, as a young girl growing up, um, I was very much exposed to evangelical popular culture. Mm. Uh, I only listened to Christian music because uh, secular music was sinful. And, uh, you know, I we had one bookstore in town and it was a Christian bookstore. So yeah. filled with evangelical literature. And so it was really only in retrospect, when I look back, I realized that even though we theologically and culturally defined ourselves over against evangelicalism, at least the theologians did, uh, right. you know, religious right. leaders, I was still kind of immersed in that popular evangelicalism. Yes. So now am I evangelical or not? You know, theologically, I was not formed in a you know, kind of mainstream evangelicalism, but culturally, I did have a foot in it. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's, in, in a weird way, that's a lot of people's experiences where they made have like, I grew up in a fundamentalist kind of non-denominational church in New Jersey, if you can believe that, uh, you know, homeschooled for nine years, the whole nine. And as I grew up, I I was, at, at one point in my life, I was reading Paul Washer and Rob Bell at the same time, thinking, <laughs> right. oh yeah, they're both evangelicals, not realizing right. that, that, that yes, maybe they're both in, in pop evangelical circles or, or, or culture, but they're so different, obviously, theologically. Logically. So right. I, I we we do get that a lot. So so when did the interest for well I before I ask you that let me ask you this um, were you always kind of like a committed Jesus person like always growing up was that always kind of your thing like yes I'm gonna make an an early profession of faith and I'm I'm always kind of committed to him is that how it was for you or was it kind of different uh, No I w- I always took my faith very seriously and yeah. uh, I didn't. Uh, do an early uh, profession of faith in in my uh, church. It tends to be high school. Mm-hmm. Um, but then during my high school years, we uh, moved uh, from Sioux Center, Iowa to Tallahassee, Florida. My dad mm-hmm. got his PhD at Florida State. Wow. And so for a time, we attended an Orthodox Presbyterian church. Um, so in the South, had yeah. a dose of, of <laughs> that. And uh, so I didn't actually, and then and then after that, I, I went to, um, I spent a year in Germany as an exchange student. Mm-hmm. And so it it wasn't until I got to college that the con- the time kind of uh, came for me to make my own profession of faith, which honestly at that point felt really late. <laughs> like I've been, it felt very uh, kind of uh, uneventful because <laughs> I, you know, I kind of committed uh, much earlier. Um, but I think that you know, to get back to your question of like, how did I get <laughs> to write you know, uh, Jesus and John Wade? There's a couple yeah. of things that I've looked back on, and one actually is that year that I spent in Germany mm. as an exchange student. And this was back in the 90s, 92, 93, um, pre-internet, uh, you know, pre, uh, I was completely cut off. Hmm. I had one phone call a month, you know, for about 10 minutes with my family. Wow. Otherwise it was snail mail. And that was the point. It was total immersion. Yeah. And so being completely immersed in a different culture 
uh, made me deeply curious about my own culture, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? In my own upbringing, um, my own religion. And, and that's really, I think, the roots of how I ended up becoming an American historian. I just had so many questions about things that I had initially taken for granted uh, that now I became really curious about. So I think that was one um, important step. And then when I decided to go off to graduate school, I went to study with uh, George Marston, uh, you know, the predominant historian of American evangelicalism at mm. the University of Notre Dame. Mm. And he was at that time drawing um, a lot of evangelical students. <laughs> you know, he was <laughs> the Christian scholar studying evangelicalism. Yeah. And so we had, you know, folks from Moody, from Wheaton, from Bob Jones. I mean, Bob Jones the fourth was a student when I, wow. when, I when I came. And so, so that kind of introduced wow. me to that world, you know, kind of the real evangelicals and fundamentalists. Hmm. And, um, and then I was introduced to them, you know, socially, they're good friends of mine. And then also kind of intellectually where we were all studying this thing called evangelicalism together. Yeah. So why don't I ask you that question? What is evangelicalism? I talked to Russell Moore a few weeks ago. He kind of said, listen, technically, I don't think it exists, but we use it when, when we want to. So I, you know, he, he understood it. I, I, the way, so, you know, new evangelicals, we obviously are very, um, we do obviously criticize American evangelicalism harshly to try and push it forward to do better. I call it the American evangelical church. That, that, that's the only frame of reference I can give because I realized that like Kenneth Copeland and James White are kind of under this evangelical bubble, even though they like don't like each other, right? So as a historian, how do you define, especially in America, evangelicalism? Like what is it? Mm-hmm. So I am a social and cultural historian, and that's important, I think, to distinguish because I'm going to approach this question in a different way than intellectual uh, historians or kind of uh, historians of theology, right? And so that's one of the the ways in which I differ a little bit from my mentor, George Marston. And I want to be clear that there's not one right way to define evangelicalism. I've written on this um, (laughs) quite a bit, Um, but there are different ways that we can define it that are going to answer different questions. Okay. And, you know, the traditional approach among scholars, most of whom are trained in intellectual history and many of whom went to seminary first, uh, is to define evangelicalism theologically. Hmm. And this is an ahistorical definition. It's using a theological rubric, you know, popularly known as the Bebbington Quadrilateral because David Bebbington coined this, a historian of British evangelicalism. So, you know, evangelicals are those who uphold the authority of the scripture. Scriptures, uh, emphasize conversionism, crucicentrism, the centrality of the cross and Christ's atonement, and then activism and evangelism. So they're acting out of that faith. And this is kind of the, the four-point uh, quadrilateral um, defines evangelicalism. Now, if you do this, you know, uh, you, you can kind of uh, apply this lens across space and time. And, uh, and so you can talk about 18th century evangelicals and 19th century evangelicals Mm. as a historian, um, I, I have some real concerns about that. On the one hand, you know, sure, we can look at a revivalist tradition and then how that morphs and changes. But I tend to veer away from an essentialist theological rubric okay. um, because so much changes over time. And in fact, you can trace yes. how the meaning of the term evangelical means different things in different times and places. I mean, right now in Europe, evangelical means something very different than it means here. Also, mm-hmm. as a U.S. historian, when you um, use it, this kind of um, theological rubric, 
what you see is the vast majority of black Protestants check off all those boxes. Yes. Right. Yes. But the vast majority of black Protestants who can check off all those boxes do not identify as evangelicals. So right there, that's important to me. Um, you know, who is self-identifying because black evangelical or black Protestants know that there is a, a whole lot more to evangelicalism than yeah. these theological points. And if you take a close look at these theological points, conversionism, crucicentrism, I mean, who, what is the born again experience? It looks quite different in white evangelicalism right. than black Protestantism, crucicentrism. Who is your Christ? Who right. is that Jesus? Right. And most significantly activism. What does it mean to act out of this faith? And you're going to see like you know, just huge differences there. So as a cultural historian, who's just looking at this rather than trying to cram everybody into a theological box, yes. I say, how are they self-defining? What does this term mean to them? And how are they living out their faith? And so that's that's the approach I take, which doesn't answer your question, then what is an evangelical? <laughs> um, I end up looking at um, seeing evangelicalism as a, a, a cultural community, as well as a religious community, one that is defined by participation in a consumer culture. Uh, so this is a little, you know, autobiographical here. Did you shop at a Christian bookstore? Did you listen listen to Christian music? Are you reading books by, you know, put out by Christian publishers, right? <laughs> yeah. That is the community yeah. that I'm talking about. And what we see is within that community, some hold a high respect for theology, traditionally defined. Many do not, not at all. Yes, right. um, But they're still actively participating in this religious and cultural community. So it's a consumer culture. And then it's also, I think we have to understand it as a series of a kind of networks and alliances. Yes. So, yes. you know, these conferences, these who's endorsing whom, who is defined as an insider, who is defined as an outsider? And these are the tools that I use to look at this constantly shifting world of American evangelicalism, particularly white evangelicalism. Yeah. Okay. I love this discussion. Um, let's keep going down this rabbit hole a little bit because this is really important because, you know, this is feedback that we get a lot. People are asking me a lot, what is an evangelical? And you're absolutely right. It's like, well, how, it's like saying, what is music? Well, from what angle are we going to approach this as a musician, as a producer, you know, whatever it is? Um, you know, first off, I, I just want to point out to the audience that as far as participation in a consumer Culture, I am guilty as charged. <laughs> Avengers and Odyssey, Patch the Pirate, Oana, you know, all the movies, you know. So, yes, I, I, by that label alone, just stamp evangelical on my forehead. Um, <laughs> I, I want to throw something your way and kind of get your thoughts on it because I'm just trying to put some pieces together as I've been doing my own very not academic reading, <laughs> just to be very clear. Okay, this is not my world. But I just did an interview with George Yancey, who wrote the book One Faith No Longer. And in the book, he really argues based on his research that, you know, um, Hey, progressive evangelical, uh, progressive Christians and conservative Christians should be separate um, faiths. They, they they should be labeled separately because they come at the faith from, from such a different perspective. And one of his arguments is conservatives um, are are more theologically centered on certain beliefs, and progressives are more centered on certain. Um, he says political ideologies, but he really means like more like 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 social justice types type initiatives. Uh -huh. But one of the problems I had with the book, and I, I told him this on on the podcast, I said, "Well, your your data is from 2012." And that's before Trump. And I feel like yeah. since 2016 on, we've seen a shift 
in these conservative circles, um, especially some of these very you know conservative circles, of them really aligning with people despite huge theological and even religious beliefs. I mean, one example of this, right? And I'm not going to ask you to comment if you don't want to. I will do all the commenting. I'll take all the blunt here, uh, brunt of, of the controversy here. But, you know, Vadi Bakum wrote Fault Lines, right? He's seen as a heavyweight in the in that community. But he's, he quotes James Lindsay. And we know James Lindsay, like we see his Twitter, okay? Like really problematic. And so that for me is like an indication that maybe like what you said, some of these other ways that we've defined evangelical is starting to shift due to the political culture really becoming really polar. I mean, more than ever, you know, really polarized. What are some of your thoughts on that? Oh, yes. Lots of thoughts. Um, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> you know, so conservative evangelicals have long defined themselves as the Christians who take the Bible seriously. Yes. Right. Yes. And I mean, you go to the Web page of the National Association of Evangelicals and you're going to find it there. Right. Um, and there's a lot of assumptions <laughs> in yes. that, in that yes. sentence. Right. So the other Christians who see things differently, including political and social issues differently, are not taking the Bible seriously. But one of the things I talk about in Jesus and John Wayne is, you know, there are a lot of Bible verses <laughs> if you look at it. And, yes. um, and we, we all pick and choose. Totally. We, we all do. Yep. And we all have these interpretive schema that we bring to it. Yes. Um, some of us are more aware of that and open about that and honest about that than others. And conservative evangelicals have not been very open about their very selective reading of the scriptures. And so they will look to certain passages and say, see, you know, everybody else isn't taking this one quote unquote seriously. And they all apply this, you know, kind of modern inerrantist lens. Yes. Um, whereas other passages about poverty, about peace and right. war, right. about loving your neighbors as yourselves, about right. turning the other cheek, right? These sorts of things like, oh, no, 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 that doesn't apply. You don't get right. it. It doesn't apply to us today, right? right? And so we just have to understand that we're all doing this. Yes. And then we have to understand, right, the patterns and why are we, what is at the center of our interpretation? Um, it, you know, how do we understand really the gospel? The gospel is yes. a word that's become almost a well, it's become a brand and it's just thrown around to mean this and that, totally. but what really is the gospel and, and who is the Jesus at the center of our faith and that, that, that central gospel story. And if that is our interpretive lens, then we go from there. And so it's really this, this question of taking the Bible seriously that, that I want to um, kind of just hold up and, and realize that this is um, part of conservative evangelical branding. And it has been incredibly effective. Yes. Now you can also take somebody like, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to criticize somebody for quoting somebody who's not a Christian um, because right there can be truth outside of Christian spaces. Uh, yes. Um, but then, you know, what are they quoting and what are <laughs> they, you know, and, and, and what I think is what I've really noticed um, in in the last couple of years, as I've been paying very close attention, I've been drawn into these conversations is um, uh, a lack of rigor in conservative spaces, conservative religious spaces, a lack of intellectual rigor, of honesty, of, of really being careful with the truth, yeah. being careful with, you know, using our academic resources and academics aren't, we don't have special authority because we call ourselves academics, but what we do have are processes mm. um, where we hold each other accountable mm. to standards within our disciplines. 
And so as a historian, I, I mean, my primary audience when I was writing Jesus and John Wayne was other historians in terms of don't let me get this wrong, right? Uh, I want to respect the evidence. I want to use my primary sources properly, properly contextualize them, mm. not omit things that run counter to my evidence. I want to draw on the, the best scholarship in my field. And so if you look at the footnotes, right, a lot of the claims I'm making in Jesus and John Wayne, I'm not making them up. I am drawing on just stacks of peer-reviewed literature, published scholarship, some of it written by Christians, some of it written by conservative evangelicals, some of it written by atheists. I don't even know the faith commitments of many of the the authors of the works that I cite because I know their methodology and I know that there is truth there, not perfectly objective, not beyond any questioning, but we have processes to test. Does this hold up? And that's what, that's my primary world. That's where I live. Those are the people I'm used to talking about. And what has really shocked me is how in conservative evangelical spaces, this is just thrown out the window. And I think it's actually really damaging to conservative evangelicalism that so many are willing to play so fast and loose with, um, with concepts of truth, evidence, and, you know, things that we should all be able to have conversations about. Yeah, no, I think that's, everything you said was so on the money. Um, I just want to highlight a few of those points. First off, you mentioned that, you know, um, we all pick and choose, and that is completely accurate. I mean, Scott McKnight in The Blue Parakeet makes this point so well, um, which audience, if you haven't read that book, it's it's really worth the read. And he makes the point that, that you know, every generation is charged to kind of take the Christian faith in their day and their way. Um, and you're right. You know, I, I even say this often um, on our social media channels, that my issue with that particular flavor of evangelicalism, the real conservative, you know, um, types that that we're talking about, and that we all, and that we all have in our head, isn't that they they have these positions? I mean, the Christian faith is huge; it's a massive yes. tradition; it's it's ginormous. It's that they claim that 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 their position is the only one hundred percent factual. You can trust it no matter what way, and anything outside of that is total heresy. And, and so the analogy that we use a lot is a lot of us are coming out of the basement of this evangelical tradition, opening the door and going, "Oh my heavens." There's a whole house here, right? Yes. Like a whole house. And the door behind us is being closed and they're saying, heretic. It's like, I know I'm yes. still in the house. I'm still yes. in the house, right? Yes. So I'm with you on that. And I, I I really think that one other thing I wanted to mention is that I totally agree with you that, yes, of course, people should should be able to cite non-Christians. My point with, with the Vadi one, just to be clear to the audience, was that, yeah. was that someone like Vadi will say that there is no truth outside of the gospel, especially atheists. You know, atheists are really, they're hurting the faith. They are enemies of the faith. So when you start seeing that kind of thing happen in a book like that, it just speaks volumes of like, of like what direction we're starting to head in. So I just wanted to clarify my own point to the audience out there. Um, I think, I think that that is really, everything you said, honestly, Kristen, is really on the money and it's, it's helpful because, you know, um, I'm a musician, okay? I play music professionally, and I've been taught by professionals. And there's a difference between drummers who are self-taught often, not every time, but often, mm-hmm. versus someone who is trained with proper technique. You, like you said, you can spot them a mile away. Some of their stuff doesn't sound fully on the money. They yeah. they kind of rush this or that. So I'm, I'm kind of connecting the two maybe for you as well, where it's like, it's not that 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 people who aren't 
legitimate academics can't do good work. They definitely no. can. But there are times when you can start to see like, aha, this person is is breaking some of the fundamentals of, mm-hmm. of the tradition that, 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 that they're trying to be a part of. Is that kind of a way of seeing it? Yeah. And, you know, I cite people in my book who are not trained historians who have, who, who, who are, are writing things that are accurate. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's more in terms of, you know, these questions of objectivity, these questions yes. of how do we yes. use our evidence? Right. Uh, and, and, you know, in his, in historical circles, I mean, uh, we've, we've thrown out this, you know, notion of objectivity generations ago. There's, mm. uh, you know, uh, this this clear awareness throughout the discipline that we are all shaped by not just our positionality, you know, ha- our, our own life experiences. We are then shaped by different schools of thought, right? Different historiographer- historiographical traditions. Like sure. we're, we're all shaped by all of these things. And, and those are, we can, we can question each other's, you know, formation. We can, we can, we can point out the vantage point. I mean, I do this every time I assign a text in class, but I don't, I don't draw attention to positionality or to the historical school of thought that's informing any given work in order to throw it out, in order to say, see, we can ignore it. It's to say, what did, you know, this positionality give this historian eyes to see, what did this theoretical, you know, um, uh, kind of grounding give them? Which questions were they able to ask yeah. because they were informed by this tradition? And then I teach at a Christian university and I'm reformed. So we can always ask the question of, you know, and did, does this kind of distort their understanding of truth? Does it open our eyes to new truths that we were not able to see? I mean, this is what we do day in and day out. And, and there are, again, ways to do this, which is, is there, is there evidence sound? When we look at the footnotes, we, we follow up some of those citations. Uh, we read the sources that they're drawing from. Did they treat these accurately? Right. Um, did they ignore the three paragraphs in this primary source that actually refute their point? Um, or is the point that they're making the conclusions that they're drawing consistent with this document consistent with other documents are they drawing on the relevant secondary literature mm-hmm. what dozens if not hundreds of historians have already sifted right this is what we do and that's you know is following those methods um that you know that's how i wrote jesus and john wayne and that's how trained historians are responding to the work right mm. in a very different way mm. from uh, conservative evangelicals yes. who are not trained in the study of history. That makes sense. So let's let's kind of dive a little bit into the book just for a few minutes here. I, again, I know most of us probably listening to this have read it, but if you haven't, the book is Jesus and John Wayne. It's it's a great read. And I think it just it passed a hundred thousand copies sold, right? Yeah, last summer already. Congratulations. So. That is that is truly an achievement. Um, one thing I've realized, I think one of the reasons that this book has been so successful out of many um, is that a lot of us who are, and I'm going to use the term that we, we try not, not to use, who are deconstructing, um, <laughs> you know, or who are trying to rethink our evangelical tradition, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're still centered on Jesus, want to understand their Christian faith better, walking out of the basement. One of the reasons why I think this book is so successful because it's because a lot of us are interested in history all of a sudden. We're like, yeah, how how did we get here? Like, how does this work? Like, I just finished the book, um, I have it right here, The Bible Told Them So by J. Russell Hawkins. You know, and I read the book and I'm like, 
how did I never know that like terms like colorblindness have a history and it's not a good history, right? And so that kind of makes you more curious. You know, of course, I read Jamar Tisby's work and other kinds of stuff that just kind of give high level overviews of, of certain historical events. And so your book really does that where it's like, Oh, the tradition and the consumer culture that I grew up in has a history, exactly. and it was a history that I was never told before. I mean, I I like to think I was pretty much as evangelical as you can get. I was the poster boy, you know, yeah. at all the church services, read all the books, was at all the conferences, never heard of Bill Gothard. Yes. <laughs> I yes. know, and I'm like, who? This guy was in evangelical circles, and he was allowed to be there. So, so talk to me about that. Like, how did you how did you decide? what to put in, maybe like what was important? Like how, how, how did you kind of stitch all this together? Because the book is really a masterpiece in that way, but there's a lot of stuff that you go over, a lot. <laughs> there's a lot, yeah. yes. It was a challenge. My, my original draft was 60,000 words over the limit, so I had to cut a lot out. It <laughs> oh, was geez. harrowing. That's um, like uh, the extended cut, you know? <laughs> Do a it book is. Extended yes. cut. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, I um, essentially, this was a book that, that uh, it, it's a book about uh, white evangelical masculinity and militarism. And so that's the thread that I'm pulling out. It's not a history of all of evangelicalism. It wasn't meant to be. Right. Uh, in fact, I had an early disagreement with one of the publishers who was bidding on this book um, saying w- when we were talking, he said, you know, Kristen, what you have here is a, his- a new history of evangelicalism. And I was like, no, 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 no. Mm. I'm like, nothing so grand. I'm mm. just pulling this one thread through. And he's like, nope. And I was like, yeah. And, and we just went back and forth. I didn't go with that publisher. And then about three or four months into the writing process, I, I was already with another publisher and I was like wrestling with like, what's going in here and what, and then right. this leads to this. And it suddenly dawned on me that, oh, this is a new history of evangelicalism. And his words came back to me and I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, <laughs> like mm. I, um, but I mean, it is and it isn't. It still is pulling that one strand, but it's saying that this is a central strand. It's a dominant strand. And so these the other parts of evangelicalism that are not this still have to bump up against this, still yes. have to interact with this, right? And that's yeah. what this what this book is suggesting. Now, the previous histories of evangelicalism have largely uh, ignored popular culture, like the ordinary evangelical experience, right? So they're going to talk about what... Right. what uh, theologians were discussing over at, you know, um, uh, Wheaton College and Moody Bible Institute and Fuller Seminary. And, you know, they're going to be talking about the leaders, this institutional and intellectual history approach, which is helpful. And those histories are still relevant. Um, But what was missing is this popular history and then also a, a history that was attentive to questions of power, as cultural historians know how to talk about power, um, gender, and race, and um, and to get beneath how white evangelicals themselves talk about these terms, uh, which is, well, you know, um, gender, it's purely biblical, right? This is, totally. there, there's no cultural analysis there. There's right. nothing, there's nothing We're to not see biased. here. Just the Bible. It's just the Bible, just right. the Bible. Right. On race, like you say, you know, the, the invention of, you know, this colorblindness ideology and, and Hawkins's book is critical here. Jesse Curtis's book, The Myth of Colorblind Christians, mm. bring these two books together compelling, compelling history that really all evangelicals who care about race and racism really ought to read. Um, So as a historian, um, 
there are a lot of these good books out there. Um, you know, these two were written after Jesus and John Wayne, um, but there are other stories out there and we historians know this, this history. And so um, for me, I honestly didn't realize that what I was doing in Jesus and John Wayne was going to be quite so disruptive because I hadn't fully understood. Again, my eyes were kind of on the, the academic side of things. And I knew that historians of evangelicalism had overlooked some of these things. Um, I had not really had my eyes on this, this whole popular uh, world of evangelicalism in terms of the histories that they had been exposed to. But now it makes perfect sense that yeah. evangelicals within this consumer culture within this really tight subculture had really controlled their own narratives. Um, yes. Very much so. Right. And so, you know, take something like Billy Graham, the Billy Graham of Jesus and John Wayne is not the Billy Graham. It turns out that almost every white evangelical, you know, right. thinks about this is Billy Graham, but the Billy Graham of Jesus and John Wayne is the Billy Graham of a whole lot of academic histories on Billy Graham. Right. And so so one of the things that Jesus and John Wayne did was simply take what professional historians have long known and put it in a narrative that speaks directly to ordinary evangelicals or people who were once evangelicals who lived this history, but never understood it in this way. And so yes. I think the most frequent response I get from readers is, you know, this is the story of my life. Um, but I never understood how all these pieces fit together. And honestly, when I wrote this, I did not realize there was going to be this massive audience of evangelicals and former evangelicals <laughs> here to read it. Again, I was just trying to get the story right. right. And I thought most evangelicals would probably hate me. And, and that's pretty much as far as I thought. And then I just knew I had to, I had to write this book. I had to get it right. Yeah. And so the popular reception within evangelical spaces has, has honestly been a huge surprise to me. Spring is basically a second holiday season. Mother's Day, Father's Day, weddings, the list goes on. And what better way to celebrate them than with Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery. Drizzly is the easiest way to shop local stores and compare prices on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered to your door. Download the app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Must be 21 plus. Not available in all locations. For the Millers, movie nights were once tradition. Now Sarah could hardly get through the opening credits. Not on that old couch. But one day while shopping on QVC.com, she learned Lazy Boy recliners had slimmed down a bit. And in just a few clicks, Sarah got her Lazy Boy chair and a popcorn maker and a soundbar by Bose. And with one quick trip to QVC.com, Movie Night and Sarah's Back were saved. Shop QVC.com slash podcast and use code QVC20podcast for $20 off $40 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life. Well, one of the, one of the things that you really exposed is that, okay, just like how we've, I've been you know, brought up being told that, that, that this is the gospel, the gospel's key, we can't preach a false gospel. It turns out like the gospel that even they told me has other essential things that aren't even part of the gospel, right? Like yes. this masculinity, this complementarian position, yeah. um, the colorblindness, how we don't deal with social justice issues, whatever else it is, right? Things that you talk about a lot in your book. And I think that's maybe one of the most damning pieces, at least for me, where I was like, yeah. wait a second, 
Even the people who tell me Christ alone don't even believe Christ alone. You know, it's Christ plus complementarian, right? And then once someone writes a book that is from an academic who this is her, like her wheelhouse, her lane, right? And and, and puts it in language that that someone like me, who's not an academic, could read and go, holy smokes. (laughs) Then people who see that, I call them gatekeepers, that's when they go into what they do. Right, which is they circle the wagons. The book is not good. The book isn't well done. Here's my review, even though I'm not qualified to give you a review. You know, but honestly, they they, they it's not a it's not a posture that like that that you talked about with academics, where it's okay, we hold each other accountable. What is the good here? What can we learn? Is this accurate? If it is, what? How do we change? It's 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 really close our eyes and cover our ears, right, and just yell. You know, I'm not going to listen to you until you go away. Is is that's the idea? And I think that's what concerns me so much in in the in the context in the cultural moment that I'm seeing in America specifically is that I don't know. If some of those people who really are these gatekeepers of these institutions, and a lot of them, even though maybe statistically they're they're not as popular, they're very powerful, right? They have yes. immense influence, like yes. you like you said in your book. They have they, the ripple effect goes way beyond their own sphere. I, I just don't know what it will take, if anything, to 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 have a good faith dialogue that isn't that isn't. I'm sorry, you're a woman and you wrote this book. I mean, honestly, can we be honest? I mean, that is for some, I've seen the tweets, Kristen, like I yeah, follow it. Yeah. I'm just, I'm, I'm like, what I want to do is dehumanize them and curse them out. Of course I can't do that because they're made of the Imago Dei and it won't do anything. But like, it's very <laughs> aggravating to see those, those, those hints of even the sexism of how they approach yeah. your work. It's very frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. It is frustrating. A couple of points. Let me get back. Yeah. To the, I, I the said a lot. I'm part. sorry. I'm venting no, no. to you. <laughs> I, I do want to point out that the, some of the readers that I am absolutely most grateful for are conservative white evangelical men, many of whom are pastors, many of whom are complementarians. Hmm. And they are reading this book and they are saying, I'm still a complementarian. I still think the Bible, uh, you know, it, it instructs us in this way. But that doesn't mean that we have to embrace this Jesus and John Wayne Christianity, right? Mm. And those are the really, really, you know, insightful readers that I want to hold up against these, you know, the ones who have the big platforms who are trying to take me down, um, who are really playing fast and loose with, you know, basic logic, (laughs) with evidence, like all these things and and imputing all kinds of motives and all kinds of, you know, uh, kind of takeaways from this book that really, that's not what the book is or does. Um, And so it's these, you know, conservative complementarian pastors who can say, this book actually helps us be more faithful Christians and more faithful complementarians. Now we can have a theological debate about, you know, are, are complementarians right or wrong? My whole first book is on Christian feminism and mm. we can get into that. But as a historian, I like to describe those conversations more than I like to enter in. Um, and uh, clearly I have some opinions, but I also don't speak with theological authority on those particular questions. Mm. Um, and so I love that what I, a successful history book does is it helps us ask these questions in much better ways and that many complementarian conservative evangelicals are able to see that. And so just kudos to them. I'm I'm really grateful for their and for their public um, testimonies. And they, they take a lot of flack for coming out and defending the book and defending me. And I'm really grateful for that. 
Um, but then yes, the, the more frustrating folks. Um, so a little confession here, um, <laughs> just you and me, Okay, um, yeah, just, just you and me, <laughs> you know, I, I, I've worked to draw them out. Uh, and hmm. my engagement on Twitter is in part, uh, social media has absolutely changed the game. Yes. In, yes. in ways that are astounding and in ways that I, as a scholar and now participant observer, have not fully wrapped my head around. Yeah. So I'm, I'm figuring out as I go. Yeah. But as a historian, I usually write about people who are dead. Um, Jesus and John Wayne <laughs> changed that because it brings it up to the present. Right. But this is the first time I've had an opportunity to interact with my subjects. Uh... And, um, and so what's really remarkable is when you do, you produce more evidence <laughs> that you can use. Right. You, know, you get to actually right. like, wait, are you really saying this? Yeah. And sure enough, they are. <laughs> and then a whole lot more. Right. Um, but what about this? Right. And so one of the things that I've been able to do through social media is is hold them accountable yeah. and 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 say, OK, is this really what you're saying? And um, but no, this is inaccurate. And, and no, this is <laughs> you cannot say this about me. And, and so what it does is it just I'm, really what Jesus and John Wayne does, too, is it it takes their own words and it holds them up for all to see. And now we can observe, you know, are, are we good with this? Is this, right. you know, is this logical? Is this truthful? Is this honest? Right. And many people are able to see, no, this is fundamentally dishonest. This is, you know, these are some abusive tactics, maybe even this is not. And, and so I've been kind of, you know, playing that role to hold this up for people um, to examine. Um, I don't ever expect to change their minds. That's mm. not why I'm engaging in conversation. Mm. I do want to make visible their tactics because I want people who are under their authority and who are in, in their orbits of influence to have some, you know, kind of external vantage point here to be able to see that there's another way to do things. There's another way to approach these issues and, and that's really what I'm going for. Um, I, that said, I, I kind of, um, you know, I'm making this up as I go along. Yeah. At a certain point when, um, when things devolve and, you know, I'm being called a wolf and I'm being called a, you know, right. I, I'm, I'm walking with the devil and all of these things. And I see <laughs> what's coming at me. You know, it, it doesn't touch me at all. They are not my people. I am not writing for their, um, you know, approval in right. any respect. Right. Um, but I do worry that what they're really doing is not just trying to bring me down, but they are sending a message loud and clear to people in their spaces that this is how we're going to treat you if you step out of line. And that actually concerns me mm. and I don't want to reinforce that. And so this is something that I think very carefully about. I, I, I want to, um, I, I can absorb these hits just fine. Right. Um, but I'm really concerned about the people who are under their influence. Yeah. It's a fair point. Wow. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm with you all the way. And social media definitely has changed the game. I mean, even when the emergent church kind of exploded, you know, there wasn't social media like this. And I'm still trying to wrap, wrap my own head around even the waters I'm swimming in. You know, when, when we launched New Evangelicals uh, a little over a year ago now, December of 2020, 
um, I didn't know, you know, like what I was stepping into. I'm like, hey, anyone else be thinking their faith? Because, you know, yes. Trump and all this stuff and boom, I'm like, oh, a lot of us are. OK. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see, you know, as time will tell how all these movements intersect. Right. And how they impact each other and how social media you know, really made it possible for people to find each other uh, in in a lot in a much easier way than maybe before that existed. Um, and it seems like a lot of people who are, and this kind of gets into the, like maybe the future of where maybe you see things going. I know I know you're a historian, but obviously, hopefully, we can use that to kind of talk about about mm-hmm. where we're heading as a movement. Um, I feel like it seems that a lot of people who are, you know, now identifying as evangelical or, you know, deconstructing or something like that. Just something that, that, that says there's a problem in white evangelical spaces in America. You know, that's kind of the overarching theme here. It seems like one of the one of the reasons why they've been so effective to bring attention to this is because, like myself, we grew up in that space for 30-something years, and we know that space, and yeah. we know how it works, and so it's very easy for us to say, hey, let me explain to you what's really going on, you know? Yeah. Like, the analogy I use is, like, you think that worship moment is spontaneous? No, 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 no. <laughs> Let me tell you how it really works in rehearsal, okay? Because I've right, been a right. part of that. I've done that before. Yeah. And so what what do you think, like, all this is headed? If you had to kind of give an, uh, you know, your best educated guess, do you think that, that we might see some real system? systematic uh, reform in this in these white evangelical spaces with, with how we approach so much of our theology? Or do you think it's going to just further the, the divide? And like, like George Yancey says, progressive Christians, conservative Christians, they are just, you know, us versus them kind of thing. Yeah. No, I don't, I'm not seeing that divide, frankly. I think you're absolutely right that um, data from 2012 uh, doesn't speak very well to this moment. Um, but also I would say this moment should make us reinterpret some of that data from earlier mm. as well. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I, where are we now? What I'm seeing is a whole, like you, a whole lot of individual reckoning, individual, um, yes. you know, a sifting, um, yeah. I'm seeing very little institutional change. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, somebody actually pointed out on Twitter. I love when people like are analyzing kind of me or or what's happening. And I, I always follow those people. I'm like, I want to. I want you to you know, you, critics as right. well. You know, who right. could help Definitely. me understand. And uh, you know, one of the things that they were suggesting, I think it was uh, when I brought out that you know, one of these guys, uh, I can't remember if it was Kevin Young or sometimes they kind of blur together, you know, was yes. was calling David French, you know, still, oh, you're my brother in Christ, but man, we've got some disagreements. So I was like, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, like right. he gets to be brother in Christ, and right. I I'm just, you know, the wolf over here in, right. in the, those spaces, what's up, you know? Right. Um, right. And and somebody pointed out that uh, obviously. There, there are lots of uh, answers to that. Uh, but one was that, um, you know, sure, you have a lot of it, it's about power um, and and obviously gender, but also power. Um, you know, I'm I'm not a regular writer for uh, uh, The Atlantic or The New York Times uh, You know, mm. on occasion. I, I get in there. But right. more importantly, uh, you know, like. I, um, David French, they said speaks, you know, has a huge following among American pastors huh. and I have a, a sizable following of largely marginalized people. Yeah. And I, when I heard that, I thought, yes, cause I'm trying to understand, you know, I see the numbers and I see the engagement and I understand yeah. that there is power that comes 
with that, you know, I, I, I'm trained in an analysis of power. I, I get that. And so I'm trying to respect that and steward that well. Um, but that was a really interesting insight that uh, many of the people who follow me uh, on social media are disaffected. They have um, lost their place in their communities. Yeah. They are they they are pastors who've lost their their pastorate, or they are people yep. who who are anonymous because they know the costs that they will pay in their in their uh, communities. Yeah, and maybe they they will lose their livelihood if they come out. And so I thought that was really really key that many of the people you know following you following me are those who are disaffected. And um, what I'm not see happening, it's very early on yet, but what, what we would probably need to see in the future to see any real reorientation is that these disaffected folks who are now feeling very alienated and finding community virtually yeah. would have <clears throat> to find each other uh, in real life. Yeah. And form new institutions, yeah. new networks, yeah. um, and that is how these things kind of that that's how how change really takes hold. And this kind yeah. of ad hoc, you know, individual reckoning is authentic. It's real. It's important, but it doesn't necessarily produce long term change. That those are the questions that I'm kind of bringing to this moment. So, okay, let's talk about that for just a minute or two. Then we're going to move on because I want to get to this, some of the other stuff we talked about. If we have a minute, um, we got last year we estimate we got about ten thousand DMs on Instagram. Okay, from people all over the the place. That everything you just said, pastors who are scared to leave their job, people who have lost their community, including myself. I lost my faith community over my uh, social media presence. They said either stop leading worship or step yeah. down, you know, um, whatever. So yeah. that is completely correct. There is an entire group of people from all different walks of life who have a very shared experience. We tried to change things from the inside out like we were taught to, right? Be part of the change we were asked to leave. Or I'm, I, even last night, for example, a pastor, me and my wife, were really struggling. We're not sure what to do, you know, in light of Passion 2022. I'm not sure how to handle this, whatever it is, right? Um, and, and, and so you're right. And a lot of people ask me, what's next? What do we do? And uh, to be very transparent with you in the audience, you know, the idea of another institution scares me because I all I know is white evangelicalism. I mean, I'm yes. a white male, quote unquote, leading the new evangelicals because, because I, I created it, but that's, isn't that what white men do? <laughs> they it start totally new is. things, totally right? And they, and they just kick the door down and say, oh, deconstruction space. I have it figured out. You know, yeah. I, I, let, let me give you the answers. And we're, we're, we're working on, on, on even our future and how we do all that. But it, it really scares me because I don't want to become a fundamentalist all over again. And I know that as long as we're humans, no system will be perfect. I, I get that. Right. But it, it is tough because I'll, I'll tell you, I see, for example, I see Mark Driscoll. He's an easy one, but he needs to be mentioned in this conversation because I see him still being platformed by Gateway Church, the second largest church in America. We brought it to their attention. We wrote them a very nice, respectful letter asking for clarification. Their response was, thanks. 
that's it, you know, and, 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 and life goes on. I mean, even after yeah. that, even after the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast that like topped the, the podcast charts in general, Mark still has a church. It makes a lot of money yeah. doing it. And yeah. so I, I, I can say as a white evangelical male with that history, not of Mark Driscoll, but of being in those spaces, I am terrified of becoming another Mark Driscoll, yeah. you know, like, like the power goes to my head. Right. And I become yeah. this notorious person who's so hell bent on my own ministry because God's working and saving souls. That really scares me. And it's, I think it's one of the reasons why so many of us are so hesitant to call anything we do a network, an institution, a yeah. conglomerate. Although to be fair, I agree with you. We need to work together to push things forward. We just have to. You know, yeah. we are more than the sum of our parts, and individualism, I think, is a major problem in America because we're so hyper that way. Yeah. So I, I'm really into catch 22. <laughs> That's my yeah. honest thoughts on that. <laughs> I totally get that. Uh, you know, when when I have white evangelical male leaders, uh, some of them national leaders, you know, reach out and say, What do I do now? What do right. I do now? You're right. I was complicit in this. Right. Um, I, I'm not one to like, give a ton of advice, but I've, I've had to like work up some answers to yeah. these I can't just say like, I don't know. Um, good right. luck with that. Um, right. you know, one of the things I do say is, um, you know, take a careful look at those you have excluded. Yeah. Um, you personally, in some cases, you know, these are powerful leaders who have personally, you know, drawn those boundaries in the past, you know, and, yeah. you know, Rob Bell is on the outside and Jed Hatmaker's on the outside yeah. and a lot of people, you know, um, but, but even, you know, much more, you know, kind of, uh, you know, less, uh, uh, you know, those without a national profile Sure. in, in your, in your towns, in your faith communities, in your tradition, who did you actively exclude? Um, and often this is around, you know, LGBTQ issues we yep. can talk about, but then also, um, and who was never even considered part of your faith community or fellowship. And this is where race really comes in. Yeah. Big time. Um, evangelicalism, white evangelicalism has a long history. And you know, we can talk colorblindness here of pretending like they are all inclusive Yes, and pretending that they are the one true faith when they have actively excluded African-Americans, including those holding conservative theological yes. views, right, from yes. their faith community. So you look at the history of fundamentalism, right, named after the fundamentals, this yes. collection of, right, publications, those were only sent to conservative white pastors, not to black pastors, mm. right? Look at the, the uh, you know, in, initial formation of the NAE. Did they invite, you know, a black denominations in? No, why not? You know, right. this exclusion. So who has not ever even been around your table. And, and then, um, you know, so whatever stage of deconstructing you're in, maybe a really good thing to do is, um, to seek those folks out, Yeah, go into those spaces yeah. and learn and yeah. listen. Right. And maybe that's where you stay. Yep. Maybe that's where you stay. Um, but for those who are like really quick to Oh, we screwed up. How can I fix this? You know, right. like, is it yours to fix? Now it right. may be, right? We need people. We, we need white evangelical guys out there saying, hey, this is not okay. We need people um, who are paying steep costs. We need those acts of courage. Because honestly, I believe if even, uh, you know, a small 
portion of people in conservative evangelical spaces who, who are convicted that what's going on is not okay. Even if like 10% of them would get vocal about it, it would yeah. completely change the landscape. Cause now what happens is when one or another does that they're picked off, you're yes. picked off. Right. I'm picked off. Right. If people right. are trying, uh, if we are all saying this and we all don't have to agree in a hundred percent, you know, I don't agree a hundred percent with what Russell Moore thinks. And the same goes back, you know, he's very clear about that. And right. David French, same thing. Like we're not on the same side of everything, right? but we're saying there should be a space for us Yes. as the body of Christ. Right. And, and that cannot just be, um, uh, you know, it, it cannot just be a white space. And that so many of these critiques, I mean, this is, this is a, a criticism kind of against Jesus and John Wayne sometimes, or certainly against the, the um, popularity of Jesus and John Wayne. The fact that, you know, the, the, the theological critique that is, you know, in the critical framing of my narrative is nothing new. And Black Christians have for centuries been calling these things out. Yes. Right. Yes. And white evangelicals have been ignoring them. Yes. Just not paying any attention. Yep. Whereas, yep. you know, for me as a white person and a white person who now has social media, who can like <laughs> ping them, yes. you know, it, it's harder to ignore. So all of this is true. And I think that, you know, for you personally, simply the fact that you're asking these questions regularly is, very different from Mark Driscoll. <laughs> and, and then, you know, the, the people that you choose to learn from yeah. and really, you know, uh, be in relationship with, uh, to amplify. And sometimes it might mean, yeah, yours isn't the voice to speak into this moment, right. or maybe it is. And then also your critical job is to show some of your followers um, the other voices that they absolutely should be listening to that have never really made it into their spaces. Yeah, I think that's really good. And I, yeah, I, I think that that's really good stuff. Um, I, I, um, I'm early on, but I, the way I phrase it is I'm pretty early on in my own decolonization process. You know, I'm reading some stuff by Mark Charles and, you know, whoever else I have Nathan Cartagena, who I really love, yeah. um, had him on the show a few weeks ago. Just great. And one thing I'm realizing is that the more I read, you know, I'm, I'm reading James Cone now for the first time, which again, I'm mad that in 33 yeah. years of evangelical spaces, never heard the name James Cone. I know why I didn't because yeah. I'm reading his stuff. I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. but like, I'm yeah. still bummed, right? But what, one thing I'm realizing, and we'll end this part. Part here, and then we're going to move on for a few the last like five or six minutes. Here is that in my estimation so far, it seems like all roads lead back to white supremacy. It really does. Like 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 I, it's like that game Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. You know, like like how many how many layers until boom you get to Kevin Bacon in in Hollywood? It's the same thing with this stuff. Like the ripple effect, the the foundational like one of the main ones, if not the main one is the long history, not, not just American, but the long history doctrine of discovery before that, that really plays into what we're seeing even today. Um, which is why I think the work of the historians such as yourself is so vital, maybe more than ever, because there is so much out there and we need the hard and tedious work done of people who can say, we've done the work. Here's the receipts. Here's what it shows. And here's why you must understand that. So, I'm with you all the way on that. Um, okay, we got five minutes left. This is not nearly enough time, but I got to ask this last question. So you say that you're reformed. I know you said online that you're a Calvinist. I know. We, we got five minutes. This is so unfair to you, but we have to do it. And if we go over five minutes, I hope you're okay with that. Um, you know, 
but you don't sound like the reformed type that I know <laughs> or the Calvinist that I know because, and to be clear to our audience, you know, if you don't know Calvinism, how I've understood it, so please get ready to correct me, essentially is tulip theology. You know, it's the idea that, 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 that humans are ultimately wicked from the beginning. They are depraved evil. All they know is evil and all they can do is evil and God has sovereignly, meaning in all of his control, uh, predestined who will essentially go to heaven and who will not go to heaven. That's what it comes down to. I left that a long time, a couple of years ago, because it was giving me le- legitimate panic attacks and anxiety. I went through a whole thing, mental you know, crisis uh, through it. I discovered Leighton Flowers, who is uh, the podcast host of Soteriology 101, who was a Calvinist, now he's not. So when you said on Twitter multiple times, like it wasn't a typo, yeah, I'm a Calvinist, I'm like... Like, like the James White, Jeff Durbin Calvinist? Like, so can you just break that? Can you help me with this? Because I love everything you do. But this <laughs> one, I was like, I, I need to ask. I just need to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know. You got five I, minutes. I'm, I'm not much of a deconstructionist. I'm a very conservative person, actually, in terms of uh, taking things slow, right? I, sure. I And I have, I'm a historian and I was drawn to history in part because I have such a great respect for tradition. And definitely. Um, so again, I grew up in a Dutch Calvinist community. I went to a Dutch Reformed College, Dort, uh, named after the canons of Dort. My dad wrote his dissertation on Abraham Kuyper and sphere sovereignty. Um, I studied Dutch philosophers like Herman Doiweerd. This will mean nothing to 99.8% of your, your listeners. Yes. Uh, but I'm know, one of them, to be fair. <laughs> right? So I'm situating myself uh, in this tradition. Uh, I was I had an entire course in as an undergraduate on Calvin's Institute of the Christian religion, right? We just went through it. Um, And it was taught to me by a Dutch um, Canadian professor uh, who had, um, you know, lived through uh, the Nazi occupation of Mm. uh, World War II. And so I was presented a version of Calvinism that was not American, deeply suspicious of uh, nationalism. Hmm. Uh, one that was actually framed in a loving and generous way. Tulip was not part of the syllabus. Um, uh, total okay. depravity, though, yes, right? Original sin, total depravity. I grew up, you know, that was the truth. Um, to me, it also, but it was all, it was, it was also um, kind of uh, balanced with common grace. Mm. And so total depravity, we are all screwing up all the time. Um, that has actually served me well in like looking at the world around me, sure. engaging in the conversations I engage in. Um, as a historian, there's a whole lot to despair Like when you look at the yeah, past. I guess that's and, true, right? Right, so having right, a theological right. framework. And, and then when I... Um, but it was also presented, uh, you know, this predestination was um, taught to me by theologians and philosophers who understood it not as uh, with a whole lot of humility and mystery. And really what what this teaching is trying to get at is God's sovereignty. 
Uh, and that has to be the focus. And then we have to also understand our own human limitations, Sure, our limitations in comprehending something that ultimately is so far above and beyond us. And so there was this real kind of intellectual humility, as much as there was this rigor mm. of, um, you know, let's figure things out. Let's study the whole of Calvin's institutes, let's <laughs> study, you know, and there was, there was also a pushback against the scholasticism that emerged Mm. even early on with Theodore Beza and others, right? You know, like to still keep the living God at the center. And then we're going to try to describe it and we're going to try to get our theology right. But there is a living God, a sovereign God, a God who became incarnate to offer himself as a sacrifice, but sin, right. There's this already not yet, uh, you know, reformed speak right. here. Sure. Um, and so we, we are trying to live into that redemption. Um, but, but Christ came not just to save individual souls, but to bring about Shalom, to bring about the redemption of all things. And since we have such a comprehensive view of of sin, human fallenness, like each and every one of us, but also our systems in our societies, um, they are also fallen. So honestly, that is the Calvinism that I, I was immersed mm. in. And then when I got to graduate school yeah, and started to, uh, learn, you know, feminist theory started to study, you know, here I'll, I'll cause I like to rile people up, I guess, uh, I'll, I'll mention, you know, studying critical theory, Studying, you know, things like uh, you know, people like uh, or, or the, the thinking of somebody like Gramsci and Adorno and Foucault and all of these, you know, without like embracing wholeheartedly, because, again, I'm reformed and we know that any theory is a human construction and is therefore going to be an error in some way. Sure. But I understood some of these as really interesting tools to give us additional glimpses into the way that our human society is so utterly fallen and that human propensity time and again, and this is biblical, is to grasp power, to seize power, and that it is so incredibly hard to live as true followers of Christ, to to live and to model our lives in such a way that we are are following a savior who divested himself of power, Mm -hmm. gave himself up, uh, to redeem us, to redeem the world. And so that that's the framework. So I haven't actually deconstructed much at all. I feel like the work that I'm doing is in many ways, living into that Mm. faith and understanding that reformed framework of, of human sin, structural systemic sin, and trying to grasp the tools that we have with the help of the spirit, right, to participate in very limited ways, because we are only capable of limit, limited ways of redeeming the fallenness to look ahead to the ultimate restoration of all things, which will bring about justice and human flourishing. So that's my theological framework. And that's the Calvinism I was taught. And when I looked at people like, you know, these neo-Calvinists, these new Calvinists in the, in the 1990s and stuff, my initial thought was yay for us. Like, finally we're getting our, our, our day in the sun, you know, right. like Calvinism. Woohoo. And then I realized, you know, people like John Piper and, and, um, um, the young restless and reform, yeah, like, yeah. 
Oh, I think we mean very different things. Like these are not my Calvinists. And it, it was right. frustrating for a long time that yeah. on the American religious landscape, they got to speak for uh, what is Reformed Christianity because my strand of Reformed Christianity is very different from theirs. And it's yeah. always had a social justice element, always, well, and a pietistic strand. I just want to point out that um, you said that you studied critical theory, which means that Neil Shenvey will take that clip and then prove to the whole world that you know, know you're, you're a I Marxist. Know. So I'm sorry you said that. I keep giving him this. <laughs> I keep giving him this. No, you know, and I actually do this intentionally, right? Because I'm seeing the pushback. Um, and uh, what I'm seeing is that, you know, so I'm, let me just say, I'm not a Marxist. Um, <laughs> and my, my apologies to actual Marxist scholars <laughs> and actual critical theorists, like right. I'm not pretending to be one. Right. But I, I also want to, uh, what, what I see is so much self-censoring now in white evangelical spaces and in Christian colleges, because mm. the pushback is so brutal. It's so exhausting and it's so ridiculous. Yeah. And so you're like, you know what? I'm not even going to put myself out there. And so what happens is this self-censoring, this muzzling, and that is exactly what we should not be doing. So yeah. I'm going to say, yeah. yes, I, I teach cultural history. I'm going <laughs> to teach my students Gramsci and right. I'm going to, I'm not going to tell them that Gramsci has the answers to everything. I'm going to tell where his ideas are coming from. I'm going to give them some Christian critiques. I'm going to give them some, you know, and, and this is where I leave things. And then I, you know, can this help us see something in uh, the created world, a created world that has fallen into sin, or is it too problematic? And is it itself reflective of this fallen nature that it's, it's an unhelpful tool? Those are the conversations that we need to be having, but those are the conversations we are not having. And yeah. so, no, I'm not going to um, pretend. Yeah. I, I don't, I will play into the hands of the critics any day in order to maintain the space to have intelligent conversations about the things that really matter. Just like in your chapter, holy balls, there it is. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, not gonna, not gonna self-censor. I appreciate that, Kristen, and you know, I really appreciate you coming on and making time with me. I, I, I and I also appreciate that you kind of gave some of your theological background because the. The audience out there, I think a lot of us, we hear words, we get triggered. Oh, my God, I, I grew up in a version of this, and that's all there is. And it's always important that even traditions that maybe we have theological issues with, right, to realize that that it's not a monolith. There is yeah. diversity of perspective there. And people who write books like this can have views that we might think, how does this work? And it turns out it actually does. You know, I love the Bible Project. I love how, how they talk about, about humans trusting God's wisdom over our wisdom. So a lot of the same ideas are there, and I agree with you. You know, I mean, humans— we, we know can do a grave evil. We, we, we see it time and time again. So I appreciate that. You know, and I also last thought I'll give you, and then we're going to sign off here is, um, you know, deconstruction is a really weird word. And I think a lot of people, like it looks different for a lot of people. Yeah. I, what I would say to people in our community who are, I guess, deconstructing, a lot of us are really, you know what it is? It's not so much that, that we're carving a new path or even a new belief system, we're really rediscovering the Christian tradition or discovering it for the first time. Like yes. I have the book, where is it? Um, eh, it's somewhere over here. Oh, wait, here it is. It's um, by, this book changed my life. Um, Donald Dayton, Discovering an Evangelical Heritage. Yes. Right, yes. I read it, I'm like, I want to be Wesleyan, you know, abolitionist. Like these totally. Are, they're badass, you know? Yes. So, so, So a lot of us are like, 
oh my gosh, it's not that I want to forget my faith. I want to actually discover my faith and yes. in, in the depth and the riches and just how beautiful it is. So, so I, I'm sure we're on the same page there. But anyway, you know, I appreciate you coming on. You, you've hung out with me a couple minutes over time, and I that is super charitable of you. Um, where can people find you? Um, where can they find your book? Why don't you go ahead and plug your stuff? And if there's anything in the future coming up. Yeah. Um, so uh, most people probably know uh, I'm on Twitter at yes. KK Dume, K-K-D-U-M-E-Z. And uh, I'm also on Facebook. I have a Facebook author page, so you can find me there. I'm a lot more active on Twitter. It's it's just fun. Um, I have a website, kristendume.com, and you can find a lot of my writings there. And I um, also have a little um, uh, video book study of Jesus and John Wayne, very amateur, but I put it up there because I, I can't zoom into all the awesome book groups that are happening. Yes. Uh, I tried for a while that is certain point, uh, it's a something lot. I had to yeah. give. Yeah. <laughs> um, and otherwise, uh, next project I'm working on is uh, kind of the flip side to Jesus and John Wayne in some ways. It is a cultural study of white Christian womanhood. Uh, looking at uh, pop culture, material culture, and it is called Live, Laugh, Love. Ooh. And uh, it'll be a little <laughs> while before that comes out. I'm, I'm still in the writing stages. So Great. Well, again, Kristen, thanks for coming on. Thanks for the work you do. It is truly helping so many, including myself and our community. And I'm sure we'll talk again. Thank you so much. That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that.